Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week, for our final episode of 2020, we are joined by Dr. Paula Curtis, historian of pre-modern Japan at Yale University, for a topical discussion on digitizing Japanese studies, considering how moving the field online through incorporating digital methods, tools, and resources might alter its future direction. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Paula. Thank you for joining us in the episode today. Thank you for having me. So normally I would start off an episode asking about your field and how your interests have brought you there, but it seems your field and subjects of this episode are quite different. Uh, can you explain how an historian of pre-modern Japan went on to become a leading voice in digitizing Japanese studies? Yeah, so I am a historian of, of pre-modern Japan, especially the medieval period, and my work focuses on metal caster organizations, uh, more broadly uh, artisanal associations, non-elite, and their socioeconomic connections to central institutions and other influential overlords. So that said, going digital, and I, I put that in scare quotes, I think, uh, was not something that I, I set out to do or that I would particularly claim to have done, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that digital engagement comes in many different forms. And I actually started out building uh, my blog, What Can I Do with a BA in Japanese Studies, uh, affectionately known as Shinpai the Show, about uh, 10 years ago this July, actually. Um, and during the last decade, and Oh, God, it's been a decade. Uh, I've been compiling resources on Japanese studies, whether it's, you know, advice from people who took their careers in diverse directions or databases or sites that people might not have known about otherwise. And the digital landscape was very different back then, for sure. But um, in my work as a medievalist, uh, someone whose sources are comparatively scarce I've always tried to think creatively with what little I do have. Uh, and because of that, digital methods became another way to approach this kind of scarce evidence in new ways. And from that impetus, I've, I've tried to learn more about the multitude of possibilities for digital methods and digital tools in my research and also pedagogy. Can you give us an example of some of these digital tools that, that uh, you're trying to compile? Uh, so... One of the things that I've done is I have compiled a publicly sourced uh, and public-facing database on English language tools uh, related to uh, East Asia more broadly, you know, regardless of time period or format. Uh, and this is specifically made to be English language materials. There are many more databases in other languages, but the hope is that this will be something that not only shows all of us in the field the many different projects that are going on that we don't necessarily know about, uh, but also people outside of other uh, of the East Asia field. So people in uh, who are teaching world history surveys or who are teaching you know, broad uh, art courses who may be wondering you know, what's out there from non-Western uh, countries and non-Western backgrounds that I can incorporate into my class and hopefully create a more diverse perspective on what it is that they, they teach or they research. Mm-hmm. I'll be asking you more about the uh, language barriers uh, later on in the episode. For now, I'd like to talk a bit about um, digitizing the humanities in general. So this has seen rising demand from many facets of the university, ranging from young tech-savvy students to fresh-faced academics who are exasperated with outdated traditional research methods. Can you share with us what you believe to be the benefits and challenges of digitizing the humanities in general? Mm, well, 
first off, I'd say that it's deceptive to suggest that the quote unquote traditional research methods and digital methods are really mutually exclusive. Uh, digital methods are just one more tool in our toolkits to approach humanistic research questions. Uh, what the digital component allows us to do is to ask new or different questions or tackle tried and true interpretive methods at different scales and from different angles. I mean, you can think of this as, uh, from my perspective as a historian, you know, nobody would think twice if you said, I'm a social historian versus I'm an intellectual historian. But once you say I'm a digital historian, there's this assumption that comes with it that you're doing something completely different and strange and, and possibly not valid in the uh, conventional sense. And I think that the impression is that for digital, it's a kind of alien hurdle, and, and that's something that keeps people from exploring it, particularly because they believe that digital must equal hardcore programming or app development <laughs> or something like that, right? So digital humanities encompasses a wide range of diverse methods and approaches and platforms, and that very diversity is part of its, its, its challenge and its benefits. Um, I think that on, on top of imagining DH as this kind of highly specialized computer science skill, people also envision it strictly as sort of the, the sexy output at the end, right? <laughs> the visualization, the really cool map. Uh, but method is method. And, and a lot of work that goes into digital projects does not necessarily have that kind of satisfying output. Uh, there's a great deal of invisible labor and invisible products that help us kind of further our intellectual processes behind the scenes. I mean, uh, for example, despite using digital methods to explore some of the work I did in my dissertation, none of it showed up in the final writing in a formal or visible way. And that's okay. Sometimes it's the underlying work and sometimes it's an ugly failed result uh, that still teaches us something and our, our failures are as instructive as our successes. Yeah, and I think that you're right to sort of sort of say we shouldn't split traditional research methods with digital research methods, given that it's sort of it is, is a blended world. And any historian would say that they've, of course, they've engaged with digital resources. I mean, ebooks are PDFs are one of the most basic ex examples of how how it's crept into how we engage with uh, traditional methods, I suppose. Um, so any student of Japanese studies will be familiar with improved online learning resources replacing old analog variants such as dictionaries and flashcards. What resources in particular for Japanese studies are improved through digitization and are any skills lost in this process? Yeah, this is a, a slippery slope, I think. Uh, I think there's a real tension between ways of learning and, and ways of cataloging information, both in our brains and on paper and, uh, and in the digital that has emerged uh, over the last couple of decades or more especially. I think that having a lot of digital options for things like self-learning, especially uh, most recently Kuzushiji has been uh, the big topic, uh, are really wonderful and they bring more equitable access to that knowledge. But at the same time, there's also no substitute for the human element and, and learning it with other people and under the guidance of uh, a sensei who can really explain the ins and outs of any immediate questions that you might have. Um, as for the materials themselves, because the, the, the culture of research and physical engagement is very different in Japan, going fully digital presents a lot of issues that may actually hinder those who are learning 
established bibliographic and research methods. Uh, anyone who's worked on, on like a giant prefectural history or a multi-volume set published in Japan knows that one really has to pull those chonky books off the shelf and flip through them physically to find what you're looking for, right? And many of them don't even have indices, so it, it can be really difficult to find what you want without physically holding them. And then when you go to the archives in Japan, of course, you, you may not even have access to any kind of digital version of them. You'll find most people just standing in the aisles and flipping through the books, which is what is the culture of use there. Oh, yeah. um, so on the Western side, you know, academic libraries don't like to have these huge sets of books taking up space on their shelves. So they end up storing them off site, but don't have the table of contents available or the volumes have been misnumbered versus the publication number versus the catalog number. And, and digitizing those sets rarely happens. Uh, so even when it does, there's kind of no guarantee that this process was compatible uh, with the format or the infrastructure being used or the Sakuin volume might be missing. Uh, and so it's less clear in trying to sort of painstakingly click through 2,600 page volumes how you should really navigate these things in a way that makes sense for the way that they were meant to be used or commonly are used in Japan. So there's always this kind of complex negotiation between what digital access and analog engagement brings to the table in our skill development, especially when we're talking about a kind of bilingual skill development, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely mean like going through Japanese archives. Uh, it was quite a shock going to the, for the first time for me to find that when I was scanning through the catalogs, they only had listings of titles digitized and you had to kind of go through five books to find one thing that's relevant to you <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Um, yes, so. <laughs> yes, definitely. And, and the, the kind of emergency access that has now emerged because of uh, COVID has, has, has in some ways benefited keywords in these huge volumes. So even though I may have them on my shelf taken out from the library, I actually have these kind of new opportunities to engage them digitally to find the analog thing I want to run to afterwards because then the scan might not be excellent and I need to go back to the original anyway. So both of them end up being something that are essential uh, to being able to progress in my work. Yeah, and I think... Definitely working with Japanese archives, you put a lot of your own time into digitizing resources that are just relevant to you. Something I was interested in going through uh, some of your resources, uh, including the uh, humanities spreadsheet that you have online with, where you ask for academics to contribute um, resources that they have come across and to link open access material. While I do, I have digitized scanned several books uh, from Japanese and translated them to English, I feel like they're so obscure that I'm not sure who else it would be relevant to. And it seems like you have to make an entire online library to really kind of uh, appeal to academics in, in general. Do you find that's, that's a challenge? Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, we have to think about all of the copyright concerns, right? And, and you've seen this, especially in talking about uh, access and equity, there are so many schools that don't have access to the types of materials that we need, and not every job is at, you know, uh, an R1, a major research institution, according to R1 is American standards. But, um, and so uh, in exchanging these, can or should you make them publicly accessible? Uh, 
are we just relying on our sort of networks of colleagues and friends? Is there a way that we can formalize that more that benefits people who are at small institutions that don't have access to certain databases? It becomes a really complex matter of who you know, being a generous colleague, uh, being conscious of copyright issues and circulation issues, and then also taking advantage of the institutional negotiations that do happen through the really essential laborers of uh, archivists and librarians who are the information specialists helping us through all of this process. So it becomes so complex uh, when you really get down to the nitty gritty of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'd like to ask, what role does digitization of Japanese resources play in your field of pre-modern Japanese history? And to what extent does it rely on collaboration with academic institutions in Japan? I mean, as with any field, digitization of, of our resources means more access to scholarship and the primary materials and secondary materials that we need to, to do our work. With pre-modern in particular, there are a lot of kind of rare and precious items for which digitization can also be a part of uh, the preservation process of at-risk materials. But by and large, I think that any field or time period of scholarship uh, concerns itself with what the digital can mean for accessibility. Uh, and naturally, collaboration with Japanese institutions is absolutely essential for this. And it's been really heartening to see the kind of great strides in recent years that are being made in things like uh, database collation like Japan Search or IIIF integration uh, on the part of Japanese institutions in order to make finding and obtaining their holdings much easier for an international audience. Uh, I will say that a lot of organizations and scholars are really eager to work with international colleagues, but as with all of these things, you know, where to start is, is difficult for us all. You know, do you cold email someone and say you want to collaborate and hope they're going to respond? Who's the person to go to? Are you familiar with the circles uh, in each country? But uh, more recently, we've seen efforts like um, uh, the running of a course on digital initiatives in Japan at the Digital Humanities Summer Institute, DHSI in Victoria, uh, which happens each year in, in June. A couple of years ago, for the first time, scholars from six different organizations in Japan, like uh, the CODH, the Center for Open Data and the Humanities, uh, Shiryu Hensanjo, the Historiographical Institute of the University of Tokyo, uh, the Institute for Digital Humanities in Japan, uh, among others, they all, six of these scholars came together and the participants, uh, myself among them, you know, had really fruitful conversations about the work being done and that was slated for the future. So I hope that these kinds of activities can continue and more international collaborations can uh, start taking place, especially as people are, are becoming more comfortable, I think, with the digital shift. Yeah, so I'm interested to hear more about what methods you have found best for trying to instigate a collaboration because I mean networking in many aspects of academia is, is, is very important but um, in the instance that you want to, to collaborate with someone at a university who you have had no previous connection with um, what do you find to be the most effective way of breaking the ice making first contact in that way? Oh, that's a good question, uh, because I think that it's, it's, there are different customs probably in each field as to how open people are towards this. Uh, for example, I, I'm not very familiar with anthropology, but I've heard some people say that even if they've emailed someone in anthropology and tried to reach out, they may not have had a positive response. And that's kind of a field where talking to other people is, uh, you know, your main thing. And I'm sure that differs completely by who you're, who you're emailing and who you are and, and what you're interested in. But uh, for me, 
At the same time as in more recent years, uh, being connected to people on Twitter has been really useful. And there's a huge academic community on Twitter and a lot of Japanese scholars on Twitter. And so there's been this kind of way to formally, informally reach out to people. Um, but in the past, I've I have just emailed people and I'm going to age myself a bit. But uh, when I was in my master's program, I was really interested in talking to one scholar whose work actually became kind of the basis for a lot of mine. And uh, I couldn't find an email for him, as you can't often for Japanese scholars uh, at universities. Um, and so I wrote him a letter. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I worked with I worked with a sensei and I wrote him an old school letter and I included my email and said, you know, I would love to be able to talk to you more and get book recommendations. And he wrote me a letter back. He, or he wrote me an email back, but then he also sent me a postcard because he didn't quite trust that email would definitely make it through. <laughs> and so then, of course, I've had this, you know, decade long relationship with this scholar and he's introduced me to many other people. And, and part of it is just kind of showing up in a lot of cases and being willing to engage in sort of the things like email exchange. You know, I would go to conference, a conference in Japan and I would receive, uh, you know, 50 meishi, 50 cards from people who I barely knew. And I would, I would email all of them. I would take, you know, three hours out of a weekend and I would email everyone and I would say, thank you so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure to meet you. And I really enjoyed this conference. And, you know, four or five of them might have mailed me back, but they're people with whom I still have a relationship. So I think that networking sounds kind of like a dirty word to many of us because we get this image of the smarmy business relationship. <laughs> uh, but there's something to be said for just being polite and being engaged and being willing to have that conversation with somebody. So I would encourage us to, I mean, I get anxiety all the time about sending these emails. Am I too polite? Am I not polite enough? You know, mm. Just do it. I mean, they understand if they emailed us in English, uh, their language wouldn't be perfect. When we email them in Japanese, it's not going to be perfect. As long as you're not doing something completely heinous, uh, people are usually happy to be reached out to and to, to hear that you're as interested in them as they will probably be in you. So I would say, you know, don't be afraid to, to reach out and just try. Yeah, I definitely can relate to the whole Meishi business card experience. I have a fat stack of them in my draw somewhere and I, I'm ashamed to say I, I, I didn't reach out to all of them I, it was a sort of part of the Japanese studies learning curve where you realize how best to make make the use of all these cards and yeah it's part of the experience I guess so I also wanted to kind of just ask at conferences networking in this way now there are multiple ways of connecting with people and I I, when I went to my first conference, I tended to use Facebook, but I uh, swiftly realized that some people aren't quite comfortable doing that. And when it comes to social media, what do you believe is the best platform for networking with academics? This will depend heavily on your circles, I think. Um, I know that for Japan, some people use Facebook a lot more than Twitter. Some use Twitter a lot more than Facebook. Um, and I think that part of the hesitation that one usually has with using one over the other is, is it going to be your personal account? Do you want to keep these separate and have a professional account? And, and only you can decide what is right for you in that regard. Um, I tend to do most of my sort of networking with strangers via Twitter and I reserve Facebook for slightly more personal stuff and then Instagram more personal than that. And I have a narrower uh, uh, engagement there. 
but uh, it really depends. I mean, for when I first started out using Twitter, my main goals for it were to engage with digital humanities circles and medieval Europe circles who were more prominent on Twitter than elsewhere. Right. So if, if, for example, you, you know that you have Japanese literature circles that are very active on a particular Facebook group, maybe that's where you want to engage the most and put your energy. If you want to do that, it's also perfectly fine not to use social media. Uh, and I feel like people think that they have a certain obligation when it comes to engagement. Uh, but there's, there's no wrong way to, to use social media except by, you know, using it in negative forms. Uh, so I would say if you want to have a handle and do something on Facebook or on Twitter, you know, do what's right for you with the amount that's right for you. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, but you need to kind of find out where your people are. And, and so I'm hesitant to kind of give a blanket, look to Twitter, look to Facebook, uh, Mm -hmm. because it really depends on your field and the people who are engaging there. Yeah, definitely. Moving on to the next question. From my own experience of researching Japanese history, one area most in need of digitization is Japanese language articles. Uh, ebooks at universities heavily consist of English language texts, creating a dominant Euro-American narrative when drawing solely on this resource. Providing Japanese language articles not only gives voice to Japanese academics in the global arena of academia, but also practices vital translation skills. Is this absence of digital Japanese articles due to oversight on behalf of Euro-American universities or a lack of digitization on the Japanese side? And what can be done to address this shortcoming? Mm, well, I don't think that we can point the finger at one particular cause because it's a, it's a combination of issues. Uh, as you said, not only the privileging of English language materials in the English language world, and I should note that, you know, I can't speak for your other European languages and circles. Uh, I also think that there's a big gap in the exchange of research in languages other than English and Japanese. Um, but then there's also different copyright customs and laws and in, in general, the devaluing of translation as academic work too. Uh, I think that we still have to we still have a lot to do to negotiate with Japanese publishers and institutions to enable greater access to digitized articles and sources. But we also need to acknowledge the kind of intense amount of work that goes into making these sources available at all. And, and then also in other languages, I've translated academic articles from Japanese to English in the past and, and more recently worked with Japanese scholars on workshops to demonstrate the value of international collaboration on translation, uh, on material, uh, medieval materials in particular, but we need more of this. Uh, and issues like translations not really, you know, quote-unquote counting towards one's academic publications is a real oversight, especially because uh, translators often do kind of developmental editing in their process. You know, your, your argument needs to be more clear here for uh, a Western audience or, you know, this detail, you know, what, what does this mean? We might need to explain this more. Uh, so we need to kind of keep having conversations about the importance of, of access and exchange with our, our international colleagues, but also with our departments and our deans and whoever else really to kind of bring greater awareness to the value of uh, this communication and this process and this exchange. And we have to actively articulate our needs and advocate for ourselves and others in the field in this respect, because they don't necessarily know what our communities are like. And it's part of building our community to ensure that the work that we do gets the recognition that it deserves. One of your initiatives has been the creation of an online database for resources related to East Asia, spanning both time periods and topics. 
The great majority of the 164 texts currently listed there are open access, and such listings rely on the input of other academics, as mentioned earlier. This appears to me as an innovative means of encouraging ease of access to academia by circumventing the paywall that those of us outside of institutions so often come up against in doing independent research. What sort of reaction have you had from contributors and those using the database? And do you believe this open access approach is the future for university online collections? I don't think that anyone has responded negatively <laughs> to the existence <laughs> of an open access and, and publicly sourced database of, of resources on East Asia. Um, I've had numerous colleagues tell me that they use it in their classrooms or they uh, send students there to search for primary sources or to evaluate uh, digital sources, which is wonderful and I wholly encourage. Um, I do believe that open access, insofar as it's possible, should be a goal of academic and archival institutions, but I also understand that achieving that goal requires a huge amount of labor and negotiation, and there's lots of complicated issues, as I mentioned before, about copyright and licensing and international use, uh, and so there's a, a whole back end to these processes that few people are aware of unless they, they work in information services, so... Uh, be sure to thank all your librarians, everybody. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I don't think people realize is that even though publicly sourced projects like this database are intended to share the labor, there's not a lot of volunteers out there. And I don't mean to say that to sound ungrateful for the people who have uh, submitted to it, but I think that every time I periodically advertise the database, which is maybe every couple of months, I get like one or two new submissions. Uh, and, and otherwise, I just end up bookmarking things as I come across them and, and putting, you know, a big chunk of them in whenever my digital to-do list tells me that it's time for periodic upkeep. Uh, so please, everyone listening, you know, do check out the database and submit something if it's not there. Uh, but I, I think that we take for granted that these projects exist, but if we don't continually take part in them and uh, continually kind of remain conscious of the fact that they are community efforts, they, they really risk fading into obscurity without uh, chronically enthusiastic people behind the scenes pushing for, for participation. And, and this is a very much a sustainability issue for a lot of digital projects because people underestimate the upkeep, right? You either create a project that is intended to be static and you stop working on it, or you have it as a dynamic project, but who's going to stick around and do that? So you know, it's, it's very important to think about that and to think about the, the time and effort that goes into generating that kind of engagement. But it's through the submissions of others uh, that, you know, publicly sourced and public facing databases and archives, you know, use that help these types of resources grow more diverse and develop into better tools. So I think it's important to remember, you know, that we have to give in order to get back in these types of projects. And that goes for institutional projects as well. Even reaching out to tell someone the archive you put together or the exhibition you put together has been really essential to what I do and I'm really grateful that it exists. That's the kind of feedback they take to higher ups and say, look at our relevance, look at how this is benefiting people. And, and that is something that helps them become more sustainable because you can actually demonstrate uh, the utility of these things. So uh, I encourage people to always be engaged when it comes to the resources that they enjoy and use. Definitely. And speaking of chronic enthusiasm, I think every academic is aware of the importance of managing your time and energy. How much 
time does managing this database take out of your weekly schedule? Uh, well, I don't manage this particular uh, database weekly. I, I definitely have set times that I cycle through and uh, update things. Uh, I do kind of receive notifications when I do get the, the rare submission from somebody and then I can double check that the content is good and there's nothing weird in there. But I, I manage my long-term cycle of updating different projects through digital project management uh, websites. I, I use the app uh, Todoist, which is just one of, of many, but it's, it's one that I really like. And I can set myself something that says, you know, every month, check uh, and update this particular database. Or every month, you know, back up all of your research. (laughs) (laughs) Or every month, do this. Or, you know, or set, you know, deadlines and things like that. And so this is one way for me to kind of set the boundaries of what I'm working on, but also not forget that it exists and think to myself six months later, oh God, I haven't checked the database and I haven't Mm. looked at it. Uh, And so I have lots of sort of periodic reminders uh, at different times and on different schedules to make sure that I'm kind of keeping up with all of these different things that I've started. And I think that's also a good practice just for research in general. Uh, I have this for cleaning up my bookmarks that I've kind of left to languish and all kinds of different things with with side projects that I have. So uh, definitely figure out what is the workflow that works best for you, especially when it comes to uh, ongoing projects, I would say, and and find out what kind of manager works best for you because there are uh, lots of different options out there. Yeah, thanks for all the recommendations. I just wanted to ask, how do you think COVID has changed people's attitudes towards digitizing the humanities? I think that uh, it's definitely brought more awareness to a lot of the issues behind it. I think that that's both a good thing and a bad thing in the sense that at the same time as people are now much more ready to kind of share their resources and share their methods, but it also highlights the ways in which they may not be aware of things like privacy concerns or they're, they're just learning about kind of the, the heavy labor that comes behind preparing online courses or uh, dealing with copyright and, and things like that. I think that some people talk about this as kind of a watershed moment in digitization and digital things, but it's really, in my mind, just kind of an acceleration of trends that were already happening. A lot of people who have really struggled with, you know, going online with their courses, and that's completely valid to struggle to do that if you've never been asked to do it, uh, you know, get pushback from people who have been uh, made to do online courses by their universities for years, right? And, and, and think about access in that regard. Uh, and a lot of the issues, like who can actually afford to uh, use certain programs or access certain databases, while it's terrible to now know that this has become an even bigger problem, it's good to know that they now have an extremely open response from people who are willing to hear that they've been struggling with this, if that, if that makes sense. So there's sort of a, a greater uh, audience for existing issues, some of which have been exacerbated by the pandemic and others which have been ameliorated by it. And so I think that, I think that having more of the uh, language and knowledge about and for these kinds of uh, uh, issues surrounding going digital, whatever that may mean for you, is 
overall a, a positive thing, even though we are all struggling through the fact that academic systems of both uh, operation and evaluation have not quite caught up to uh, this uh, kind of shift towards digitization and digital projects and digital labor. So while we see this kind of rapid movement towards it, we also have to recognize that academia as a whole hasn't quite caught up with its implications. And so I think that there's both good and bad in that. Uh, but at the very least now, people are, are much more open to having the conversation. Yeah. Would you say that, that this has sped up the embrace of digitization with all the pros and cons that comes with that? Yes, it definitely, I think, has, has accelerated the timeline of thinking about these things. And uh, I hope that academia in general survives the pandemic, um, but I do think that it will have to undergo some serious transformations in that process. And we'll only find out in the next few years whether or not it successfully weathers that. We still have quite a bit of transformation coming towards us in that regard. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thank you for answering all my questions today, Paul. It's been a pleasure having you here. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to ask, how can our listeners contribute to your digital efforts and how else can they assist you in your endeavors? <laughs> well, I, I, I have uh, all of my projects are compiled on my website, uh, prcurtis.com, uh, and there are links to ways that they can uh, contribute to the online database. Uh, if you know of job openings. I'm also doing uh, visualizations of job data in the field of East Asian studies. And so uh, that's also uh, open to people submitting so that if I miss something, uh, especially outside of my field or outside of my language, uh, other people can be a part of that. And I'm always around on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Paula R. Curtis, so it's not hard to find me. Okay, great. Thanks, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can find a link to Paula's research profile and website in the description below. Beyond Japan will be taking a break over Christmas, resuming on the 14th of January 2021. We will be joined then by Dr. Jamie Coates, anthropologist and lecturer in East Asian Studies at the University of Sheffield, to look at migrant communities in Tokyo and Japan at large, challenging the homogenous image of a nation whose future depends on their currently overlooked migrant population. Until then, Merikuri and Yoyo Toshio. Thank you for listening.